recorded live from Hong Kong and Toronto. Let's go. This is the PR and Law Podcast. The PR and Law Podcast. Turn it up, turn it up. With your hosts, Cam McMurchy and you and Christy. Welcome to episode 37 and the final episode of 2020 of the PR and Law Podcast. I'm your host, Cam McMurchy, along with you and Christy. Hello, Cam. Ewan's an employment lawyer and partner at Duntroon LLP in Toronto, Canada, and online at duntroon.law. I'm a PR guy based in Hong Kong and publisher of the Digital Bits PR and Communications newsletter at digitalbitspr.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please tell a friend, and you can follow us on social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and we're also on SoundCloud and YouTube if you'd like to subscribe to us that way. And most important of all, please sign up for our newsletter. You can get updates when new shows are published and other information at prlawpodcast.club. Ewan, Merry Christmas. Happy, happy new year. Are we at that stage? <laughs> yeah, Merry Christmas to you too. We're, uh, we're, we're getting there. I can't believe this is the last last show of the year man it's um is it is it weird to say that this year has flown by is that kind you know, of an odd thing to say i've seen people talk about this and it feels like it has dragged on on one level but then it feels like it's flown by on another level you know like i was thinking the last time i watched you know sports for instance was so many months ago it just seems like eons ago uh, but at the same time yeah this kind of it did go quickly yeah it really did well you know cam tomorrow is the winter solstice here in the northern right. hemisphere it is of course the the darkest of days and then every day after that is going to get just a little bit brighter so hopefully hopefully you know. not just literally maybe metaphorically figuratively hopefully all of the ways it gets a little bit brighter yeah you know the winter solstice is a big holiday in china hey like it like it's uh it's right up there i mean a lot of people are going to be off work early tomorrow to to be with their families and celebrate so uh it's a it's a big event on 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 the chinese calendar right well yeah and i guess you guys are still allowed to be with your families there and celebrate right that's there are any restrictions precluding you from doing that i mean in mainland china so i have a, a couple of colleagues that went up to china just in the last couple of months I mean, they're not even wearing masks there. Like it is back to normal, like complete normal. People are flying around the country and taking trains and having huge parties uh, with no masks on. Like they've really managed uh, to contain it. Although, uh, sort of breaking news, I guess, today uh, four cases were found in Beijing. And that's a big deal uh, because China's had none for, for quite a long time. And so, I mean, the way the, the Communist Party handles this sort of thing is they'll probably basically put everyone in that neighborhood under house arrest basically <laughs> and uh, and then that'll that'll solve the problem right of course of course well we're we're more or less under i wouldn't say maybe house arrest is strong term but yeah obviously still full lockdown here and um we're supposed to just have christmas with those within you know our own four walls and actually that's kind of it's going to be kind of nice i think maybe uh at least in as much as i can't recall a christmas where i've just stuck around in my house with my immediate family and you know that that might actually be kind of a nice mellow change if that makes any sense yeah i hear you. like i just took two weeks off work so I mean, I'm going to go back now on, on January 4th, and I'm kind of looking forward to it for the same reason. Like normally, I mean, obviously I'd rather be among more people and, and back in Canada and things like that. But at the same time, this is going to be okay, I think. It's going to be some actual downtime for a change. So it's going to be a very unique Christmas. 
continue the debate with us on social media. Join us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at PR Law Podcast. All one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Send us your questions now by email to askus at prlawpodcast.com. That's all one word, askus at prlawpodcast.com. Or on social media with the hashtag PRLawPod. That's hashtag P-R-L-A-W-P-O-D. Well, Cameron, we've got a, uh, a special guest. Today. All right. I figured for the last for the last show of the year, bring somebody on, and I wanted to bring on the mastermind, Cam. Wow, that's <laughs> he some is, title. He is he is the man who 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 brought the Dunshroon brand together. Uh, he is a founding partner at at our firm. His name is Matthew Dewar. He is uh, an employment lawyer. And I thought, you know, it might be a good opportunity to sort of talk about some of the trends and stuff in employment law that we can kind of anticipate and expect to see in 2021, which I think is going to be another tumultuous year for all things employment related. So, Matt, welcome to the show. Yeah, welcome. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Thanks for thanks for having me. What what an intro! Now I'm very <laughs> nervous. I, I wasn't before, but now I don't know what to do. Well, that's the whole point. I'm just trying to throw you off your game right out of the gate, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see. I'm ready. I'm ready. Bring it. All right. Well, I, I mean, to 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 that point. I mean, what what are you expecting to see next year, or not expecting to see next year um, for employers and employees, Matt? Nothing but trouble. Nothing but trouble. I think that. Um, I think there's going to be a bunch of issues, uh, frankly, the most, um, the most obvious one in my mind, um, are going to be, what do we do with all of these employees that have been on uh, layoff since March or April, right? Of 2020. Um, I'm not, um, you know, here in, uh, here in Canada, there's a provision in, uh, in all of the statutes that say, look, if, if there's a downturn in work or business is dried up, we can temporarily lay you off for, depending on certain, <clears throat> pardon me, on certain circumstances, longer or shorter periods. But uh, the big issue is that once you hit that time period, um, then an automatic termination has been triggered. And what has been going on here is that the governments keep pushing that date uh, further and further and further down the down the road. And so on one side of it, you've got employees that are saying, um, well, I've been left out here uh, dangling since March or April, and here we are closing in on uh, the end of the year. Um, am I terminated yet or not? And statutorily, um, the answer is no. But uh, under the common law, um, the answer at some point may become Yes. Um, and I'm not sure how, long, how much you want me to blather on about this. I know. <laughs> formidable, uh, formidable. Allison Lee was on um, your show a few times ago, and she talked about constructive dismissal, um, which is a concept at law that says, um, although there hasn't been a explicit dismissal, the employee has evinced an intention to no longer be bound by the employment agreement. And therefore, the courts can imply or construct the idea that a dismissal has taken place. And it strikes me uh, as the most obvious one is when you stop paying your employee for uh, seven, eight, nine months, 12 months. 
And I think you're going to start to see some tension. So far, there's nothing happened. Uh, nothing officially has really happened. But I am seeing in my practice some employees starting to uh, take a shot and allege the fact that they haven't, they have been constructively dismissed. And I think the court is going to be faced with a difficult problem of balancing the realistic, um, <clears throat> or I should say, the facts on the ground that here we've got an employee who hasn't worked and therefore hasn't been paid for months and months and months and kicking the employee, the, excuse me, kicking the employer down while they're down um, because they too have not been making any money. So um, I think you're going to see more of those. That's the big one. And those are going to start creeping up more and more. Yeah, it's going to be, I, I mean, Cam, and just to, to give some some further context here in Ontario, the government literally just announced um, on the, the 17th that they're extending the period for which employers can temporarily lay off their employees without effectively without having to pay them until July 3rd of next year. So, I mean, in terms of a total timeline, we're now up to 18 months that an employer so, uh, can temporarily lay off their employees. So, I mean, you know, that, that, that's pretty, pretty significant on, on both sides of the fence, employer and employee, right? Right. What is the sort of default period then? Is it 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, or, or how does it work normally? The, in Ontario, you've got, um, there's a 13 week period, uh, and then, and so you just, you lay them off and, and off they go and you don't have to give them uh, anything other than formal notice that they're being laid off, of course. Um, or uh, you can lay them off for up to 35 weeks, as long as you continue their benefits. Um, and there's a little bit of uh, tension within there too, because, uh, most insurance companies won't allow you to carry on uh, benefits for 35 weeks. They usually top out at 26. But in any event, statutorily, once you hit that 35 mark, 35 week mark, you have, whether you, whether you intended to or otherwise, you've terminated the employee. But as uh, Ewan points out, the, the date on which that clock starts ticking, because the clock has been suspended. Mm-hmm. And so now the, start, the clock starts ticking on July 3rd, meaning... 13 weeks from July 3rd or 35 weeks from July 3rd before a statutory. So it's really, it's um, at some point, again, I think, I think we're going to start seeing this tension because right now I don't think the courts have been willing to entertain it simply because we're really dealing with what you might call a frustration of contract argument. And that means it's nobody's fault. The contract just (laughs) <laughs> nobody can perform it. And so no one is to blame. It just right. is frustrated. And that's the end of the decision. Now, at some point, I mean, 18, 24 months without work. Um, I don't know. I don't that's know. That's a long if the time. going to start entertaining these. Yeah. Right. So what are the employees doing now? If they've been sort of temporarily laid off because of the pandemic, are they receiving any funds from, from, from their employer or is any of that sort of offset with government programs or, or what's the status of that? Well, I think they're probably starting podcasts, really, just to use up all of their time. <laughs> they're not going to get any money to, doing that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there's right now. There are a ton of um, ton of government programs in place. I mean, there's always been there's always been a bit of a social safety net where you could collect uh, employment insurance benefits. Uh, to and they're not much to be to be fair, but it's 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 better than nothing. And uh, Ottawa. Uh, has turned on the the spigots and the money is flowing. So there's different programs, whether you're an employer, so you can get um, wage subsidies, you can get rent subsidies. um, And if you're an employee, there is 
uh, well, there's EI, but it's kind of interchangeable with, with what's known as uh, the CERB, which is, I think it's, I think it stands for the Canadian Emergency Relief Benefit. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's different, um, anyway, there's, there's a lot of programs. So there is money coming in, but it's not enough, certainly not enough to keep businesses afloat or, um, you know, the household uninterrupted. Right. And those, sure. those programs obviously different in, in different countries, obviously, um, you know, in terms of sort of how the governments are, are, are handling it. But I mean, have any uh, clients come to you sort of on the, on the employee side? Um, and if they came to you and they said, look, I've been laid off now since yeah, March or April, um, and they want to now do something about it. Do they, is there anything that they can do or, or what would you kind of advise? And I realize I'm putting you kind of on the spot, uh, but just wondering how this would work. <laughs> it's what, it's what we do, Cam. Yes. We're always on the spot here. Um, yeah, I, I have, I've, and the last employees, uh, that I spoke, uh, with about this at that time, anyway, I said, there's really not much you can do. We can take a shot if you want. We can fire off a uh, a demand letter to the employer and see if they um, see if they take the bait. And some might, you know, in in a lot of ways, if they don't have um, employment counsel to tell them otherwise, um, and they might panic and say, "Oh, I think you know, I'm, I'm maybe I've terminated you here. Uh, can we make a deal?" Um, but at the time, you know, most of them said, "Well, I guess I just I will hang out here and and wait and see if I'm recalled." I think the you know what's going on in the background from a policy point of view that no one is really saying is that um, they're kind of hoping the problem might go away. And I don't mean you know the we get we get a handle on the virus and, and life gets back to normal, but that other because it, it, not everybody is going going under right. There are businesses mm-hmm. that are flourishing, and um, I can tell you from the employer's side. I'm writing contracts a lot. You know, people are getting hired and people are leaving jobs and starting new ones. So there is, there is economic activity out there. And so I think um, what's, what's bubbling along under the surface is that everyone is kind of hoping that those employers that have laid off a bunch of employees and, and really there's no hope of coming, coming back and there's no money to pay them wrongful dismissal damages, they're going to find another job. And so they, in effect, quit the job that they've been laid off from and start their new job. No one's saying that explicitly, but I think that's kind of what the government is uh, hoping, <laughs> you know, if they can just drag this on long enough, because, you know, that's the other, here, here's another trend. Here, here's a nice segue that I just set up for myself, mm-hmm. which would be, I think you're going to see some mental health issues. Mm-hmm. Um, crap. I mean, I mean, I think we're already seeing mental health issues, but putting aside the stress of having no money come in and putting aside the, um, and there, you know, all the problems and stresses that flow there from people get bored, right? I mean, you need, I mean, the work is a fundamental, fundamental aspect of life. I mean, the courts acknowledge it all the time. And, and I can tell you that, you know, when somebody loses a job and comes to see me, they're shattered. It's, it's, it's akin to a divorce or death, really. I, I often draw the parallel. They've got to go through that those five stages of grief, you know, before, before we can actually get, get some work done. Um, but people get bored. They need something to do. And, and if there's no job to come, you know, to go, to get up and, and, and do and, and whatever. So I think those issues are going to become more and more, more and more prevalent. Yeah. And Cam also just to keep in mind, I mean, all of these, these temporary layoff provisions and extensions that Matt's talking about, they're not unique to Ontario. I mean, there is, there is similar legislation that's been imposed, um, 
in in many provinces across the country. So this is you know this is an issue that extends throughout throughout Canada. Um, we're we're seeing somewhat comparable issues in the United States and a number of jurisdictions as well, right? Where employees or employers are effectively telling their employees, look, sorry, we, we, we're not going to fire you per se, but we can't have you coming to work and we can't pay you right now. Hopefully things change soon, but we don't know. It's, it's just entirely up in the air. And to Matt's point, yeah, from a mental health perspective, you know, it's, it's always those issues of uncertainty that you really, really see making that and leaving that psychological scar and the, and that cycle, having that psychological impact where you don't know, right. If somebody says definitively, Hey, we need to lay you off for 10 weeks, 13 weeks, at least you have some sort of timeline that you can kind of mentally wrap your head around. But you know, what we're seeing is the governments are, they, they just keep extending the period, um, for which employees can continue to be off work. Um, and we, we don't know what the end game is there. You know, again, in Ontario right now, the, the deadline is July 3rd, but I think this is what, this is the, the second time they've extended it now. Um, you know, hopefully the vaccines are circulating, uh, throughout Canada and most people have been inoculated by that point, but maybe not, maybe, maybe that period needs to be extended yet again. And we, you know, we just don't know what those, what the implications of that are going to be. Yeah. You know, I mean, we've been saying for a while how the impact of the pandemic, we haven't even begun to see sort of what the consequences of that will be. And you both mentioned mental health. I think that's obviously a huge one. But I mean, the economy itself is sort of undergoing profound change at the same time. There's a lot, there's a lot going on. And also, you know, people who have lost loved ones and couldn't visit them in the hospital or couldn't, couldn't have a funeral, all of that sort of stuff is kind of tied, tied into that. But I I think you're right on the uncertainty part uh, as well. I think people do struggle with any kind of uncertainty really. And if it's your livelihood and your, and your salary, it's a, it's an even, even bigger deal. Um, And, you know, Matthew mentioned, uh, you know, work being important to sort of a person's well-being. And I mean, I heard a long time ago that that's the difference between sort of the good life and a good life, you know, the good life living on the beach and and sipping a pina colada and a good life is something where you are productive and you're contributing and you're part of society and, um, you know, you're interacting with people day to day. Um, And I think that's often forgot how, how important, important that can be. But I, I did have kind of a specific question too, which is, I mean, if, if, if you're any, Matt can answer it. If you're an employee and you are told by your, your manager that, you know, you're, you're being temporarily laid off because of the pandemic and yeah, it goes whatever. I mean, six months, eight months, whatever it might be. And they're still saying, you know, you got to wait. I, like, I know you mentioned that the employee could quit and then just move on. But is there no recourse from the management? Because in a way, they are kind of mistreating you. Like in a non-pandemic period, you, you can't really do that, right? I mean, you have to be compensated or something for, for that. So so how does that work in, in this situation? Well, I, I think that, that that speaks to the, the, the tension um, that's happening and, and building right now and where the courts are going to have to, as they say, balance uh, the outcome of this and, and, and understand everybody's rights because yes you're right traditionally speaking at, at, you know if you get laid off as an employee you're, you're you're protected doubly basically on one side you've got the statutory clock that is clicking uh, ticking away and once you hit a certain point 13 weeks or 35 weeks in ontario 
um, you've got an automatic termination. Okay, now you owe me something. And then under the common law, the other half of it is to say, unless there's an, an, an express uh, contractual term that allows the employer to lay you off, i.e. send you home and give you nothing for a, a certain amount of time, um, unless you've got a contract that allows that, then you have, of course, terminated them as well because you've breached this fundamental term of employment, i.e. I'll pay you. You come in and I'll pay you. But again, this is just one of these, you know, this is once in a, it's not even a generation. It's mm-hmm. one once every hundred years, right? The world's got to, we're, we're dealing with this pandemic. And so I, I think it's, um, you know, economically, it's too risky to start um, holding employers to account. Now, to be sure, there are employers out there that are um, a abusing this and using this as a great opportunity to stick it to employees and mm-hmm. maybe particularly ones that they don't even like to be sure. But I think the vast majority of these employees, employers, excuse me, um, are in big trouble. They're in big trouble and they don't know what to do. I've, and, and so to continue to kick them while they're down, i.e. the courts imposing massive wrongful dismissal awards on, on them is is not going to help the issue because they'll just go bankrupt. There's no money to collect, right? If there's no, if there's no entity that exists, there's no money to collect. And so, yeah, I think that's why, uh, that's why I opened up with, and this is probably going to be the biggest uh, trend next year, because I just, I'm not entirely sure the courts have to be fair. They have to be just, but what you learn in law school, and Ewan can back me up on this is that um, business efficacy seems to be paramount. Um, you know, what is the, what is the best way to keep the money going around and, uh, forcing employers into bankruptcy is not the way to do it, but it has to be balanced against some sense of justice where you mean, I've, you mean, I've uh, dedicated 15 years of my life and, uh, the virus hits and now I get nothing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's, it's going to be, uh, it's, 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 it'll be interesting because I, right now I don't think as it stands today, if you decided to bring a constructive dismissals to and we'll see because i've been threatened with two in the last uh, week um not personally i hasten to add <laughs> but on behalf of my clients um and i think it's too early i think it's premature and i and i think they're barking up the wrong tree today um but uh we'll see when it gets to march or april and i think the courts may may be a little bit more sympathetic right Maybe. we'll right. see Okay. And then I, I wanted to ask this too, but before I let you go, which is um, the employer side, <laughs> because you did sort of touch on it in that answer about how they're really, really in trouble. Um, and, and I mean, I guess there's no easy answer here, but I mean, what can they think about or what should they be focusing on uh, during these, these times? You know, I think, and I tell all my employer clients this, uh, communication is key. And I know that sounds maybe a little trite, um, but it is so very, very true. And the one of my employers that I'm thinking of that I won't name publicly, but but I should because they're doing a great job, is open, open dialogue and open communication with their employees. And they're being they're just laying it all out there and saying, look, here are the numbers, here are the hard facts on the ground. You've got two choices here right now. Choice number one is to go on layoff. We can we can lay you off. You can go and collect whatever government programs are available to you. And if and when we can call you back, we will do so. Or you can take a pay cut. 
And if you agree to that pay cut, fantastic. Then we're going to keep you on as best we can. And we, you know, we're in, we're in this together. And I know again, that, that too is a trite phrase more than it, more than any of these days, but it, but it's true. And as a result, the employees don't feel as though it's big, bad management trying to keep all the money and stick it to the little guy. They feel like they're part of the team and uh, they, these employee, these in companies, I should say, are, are making a go of it. And there's also, they're also um, promising potential uh, bonuses in the future. We'll make it up to you. If we can get back on our feet, if this gets resolved, the bone, you know, the bonus program we had, let's get rid of that. We're going to double it down the road. We'll make it up to you. Are we in this together or not? And 90% of the employees are in it together. They understand the realities and they understand what's going on, but you're going to avoid all of these other problems. Yes, they're making some money, not as much, but at least it's, it's, they're getting up and giving them reason to get up and go to work. That's what's happening with a lot of these people when you're faced with a choice. Do you want to be laid off or do you want a pay cut? Please don't lay me off. Please don't lay me off. I need a reason to get up in the morning. I need a reason to come up and go to work. And it's worth it to them. And the companies survive as a result and the employees feel part of the, the thing and it's all because of this let's lay it all out let's communicate let's let's work let's see if we can come up with a creative solution you know that is so true because that would be the the, the same advice on the communication side which is you know people are reasonable you know like people just want to feel like they're mm-hmm. being leveled with and that they're being given you know honest and, and truthful information and they're being respected sort of in this process and that can go so far it doesn't cost any money to do that either um but but absolutely Absolutely. I think you're bang on there about just communicating openly with staff and sort of the benefits of that. Yeah, Matt, I just wanted to, to jump in because one of the other things I think is going to be a huge issue next year is work from home policies, right? I mean, we've seen so many, so many businesses effectively have to turn on a dime and create infrastructure to get people working from home from a, from a technical perspective and, and adapt workplace policies from a work from home perspective. I mean, what do you, what do you see happening there next year? Uh, Tension as well. I I (laughs) see tension everywhere. I think, um, that well, we all know that 2020, if if nothing else, has demonstrated that working from home and remote working uh, conditions are feasible. And um, you know, some some people are suspicious of employees' motives and whether they really work. And um, other you know, other studies say that productivity has gone up because they're always on the uh, they're always on the clock, so to speak. But um, at some point, you know, you've got these employers with massive. Uh, office spaces that at one point housed, you know, 50 employees. And now it's, it's shown that you can only, that you can get, you can get by by housing three of them and the rest can work from home. So the employer is going to want them to maybe come back because they're tied into 10 year leases. The employees are going to say, well, I'm quite fond of this working in my pajamas routine. And I may or may not be speaking from experience and <laughs> they, you know, why do I need to come to come back? And so again, I think, you're going to see some flexibility. And if people are smart, you'll communicate with the employees to say, well, we understand the new reality and, and maybe this works, but you know, what about pay cuts? Why do I have to pay you as much to, to come in to, to drive and sit in traffic for an hour? And the employee is going to say, well, do I need to be on call all the time? So you're going to see uh, absolutely tension um, arising from that as well. Again, j- just by way of example, because I just happen to be going through it. I've got two different employers and um, both 
both of them have been faced with employees saying, look, you've been okay with me working from home, i.e. Toronto. I want to move to Mexico. That's where I'm from originally. I want to move to Mexico. I'm moving back because it's cheaper there. Uh, I want to do that. And then somebody else was like, I want to move to Alberta. I want to move across the country. And both of those employers are not allowing that and don't want it, don't want it to happen because uh, what if you're recalled? What if we need you to come back in? You need to be available all the time. But there's already this tension. So they're starting to, you know, the lawyers have not yet got involved, at least, you know, openly involved. But um, there's, like I say, there's that trouble. There's a tension brewing as to you know, expectations. People, people get expectations very quickly, get used to, get used to the new thing. So I I think you're right. (laughs) Right. So, so to sum up all roses and sunshine in 2021 from an employment law perspective. Absolutely. There's nothing to worry about. Just kick back and just, you know, put it on autopilot. You guys are going to make a lot of money next year. (laughs) Well, you know, Cam, to be fair, um, as one of my clients uh, darkly noted that billing is easy, uh, collecting, (laughs) well said (laughs) matt thanks so much for uh for for stopping by and joining us uh it's been great chatting with you yeah thanks for having me guys thanks matt show your support to the pr and law podcast by making a one-time donation or setting up a subscription with us on patreon every little bit helps us keep the lights on and bring the show to you each week. If you'd like to chip in, please visit prnlawpodcast.com. That's prnlawpodcast.com. Click support the show. Thanks for helping us out. We have been very lucky with guests this year, Ewan. Uh, we've had some great yeah. ones on, and, and that was that was excellent hearing hearing Matthew's uh, perspective on sort of where things are at. Because, you know, the issue of COVID and working from home and layoffs, it's all so prominent in people's lives right now um, on the management side and sort of the employee side. So it's, it's really valuable information. Yeah, well, you know, and that just that overarching idea that he touched on that, you know, our identity is so intrinsically tied to our labor, Mm -hmm. right? And when you, when you remove the labor from the equation, it's incredible the impact that it makes and how quickly everything else can, can kind of crumble and fall apart, you know? Um, Yes. Roses and sunshine in 2021. It's going to be a tough year. Um, Anyway, I, you know, the good thing is you in here, I I looked for a bit of uh, good news because this is the last show uh, of, of 2020. And actually I didn't go looking specifically for good news, but this came out this week and I thought, wow, this is good news. Uh, and I kind of wanted to talk about it uh, a little bit today. And it's sort of, I'm going back to sports here again, you and with baseball. And so this was a, uh, for me at least a big PR win. And I'm going to talk about sort of how they may have put this together, but I don't know if you saw the news, you and I think it was on Wednesday um, that, uh, Major League Baseball is going to include the statistics of Negro League players uh, from the early 20th century. And there were, yeah, I saw that there were seven Negro leagues actually. Uh, And so far, I mean, that was part of segregation. And so they played uh, entirely separately. And so this is a, this is a really big step uh, for Major League Baseball to do that. And, And I think one of the reasons is, you know, professional baseball has been played in North America since 1869. So it is the oldest uh, of, of the four sort of primary sports leagues um, in North America. And yeah, when it all began, it was white players only. Um, and it was, it was that way until uh, 
1920, and that was the year where segregation was sort of brought in, and and the, you know black leagues were were created, and they were called the the Negro leagues. So I'm actually going to turn it over here to NPR because I think they do a much better job of sort of explaining what happened. This is NPR reporter Tom Goldman. He's going to fill us in, talk about what happened, and then we will discuss it on the other side. Approximately 3,400 players competed in the Negro Leagues from 1920 to 1948. They were kept out of the segregated major leagues, and then, when an opportunity came up in 1969 to retroactively award the Negro Leagues major league status, an MLB committee didn't consider it. Yesterday, MLB said that was clearly an error. Larry Lester is a Negro Leagues historian. Speaking on All Things Considered, he acknowledged MLB correcting what it calls an error and long-time oversight is in fact correcting racism. My initial impression was, why did it take so long? But I think the country is, is ready for a change, and now we have this social reparation with the Negro Leagues. 96-year-old Bill Greeson is one of a handful of Negro Leaguers still alive. When I reached the former pitcher at his home in Birmingham, Alabama, he was watching TV news but hadn't heard the news that involved him. Major League Baseball is saying that this is long overdue recognition for the Negro Leagues. What do you think about that? Oh, it would be better if they would send a check. <laughs> Greeson, a Baptist minister for the past 50 years, says baseball's decision is good. But, he says, there are only a few of us left. He has good memories of the two seasons in the late 1940s when he played for the Birmingham Black Barons. The focus, he says, was on what they had, not what they didn't. We were together. We had good attendances at uh, ball games, and uh, we tried to help each other. And long before yesterday's recognition, Greeson and his fellow Negro leaguers knew they were major league caliber. Oh, sure, sure. I did. I had what was necessary to, to be a good pitcher, and I had the stuff to go with it including a tough curveball and 93-mile-an-hour fastball. It may not be good enough for him to crack the record books, but others will. MLB is launching a review of how Negro League stats will affect the game's records. Stars long gone, like Josh Gibson, Cool Papa Bell, and others, will soon be measured alongside baseball's great white players. Rightly, finally. Tom Goldman, NPR News. Now, it's interesting to note that there was that review in 1969. So at that time, baseball formed what was called a special committee on baseball records to, to specifically look at this problem. Um, and it identified six professional leagues going back to 1876. Uh, and there's, I'm not going to name them all here, but there's, there's six of them, including the American and national leagues like we have today. Um, but left off all seven of the Negro Leagues. And that's actually what baseball is now trying to fix. It's this review that left them off and sort of a reconsideration um, of this process. You and I know you heard the news this week, which you mentioned. I mean, how did it land with you in terms of the messaging around it? Well, I mean, look, I think I think it's great. I think it's long overdue. And I think it's fantastic for the MLB brand. Right. And of course, they've been plagued with all kinds of issues around this. I mean, you look at the Atlanta Braves, the Cleveland Indians. Um, you know, I think this is probably consistent with 
that same sort of brand messaging of getting getting on point and trying to be a little more inclusive than what the league historically has been. When you look at it, it sort of looks like it's a it's an easy choice. Like this is just an easy win for Major League Baseball. But actually, I don't I don't think it was uh, because I think this is kind of interesting how this came about. So first of all, the Negro League stopped playing in 1948. I mean, so we're talking 72 years that this has been outstanding. So it's not like it was natural that it was going to be fixed, you know, in, in December of 2020. I mean, this has been around a very long time. So why, why now? You know, why, why do it right now? And then the second point, it's been a particularly noteworthy year for racial injustice, racial issues. Uh, I mean, we've talked about it on this show, you know, the, the deaths of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, the shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha. I mean, there's all kinds of incidents this year that led to protests, violence, looting. I mean, all kinds of problems. And a president, you know, who, who played up the racial and sort of divisive issues. And so against that backdrop, it is kind of a, a divisive time to sort of drop some news like this. But I think the rollout was extremely uh, well done. And, and I have to say, it actually started with a tweet uh, by, by MLB uh, Commissioner Bob Manfred. And, you know, I've been saying this to clients and companies that I've worked with, putting a nicely designed quote on a graphic and sending it out on social media is very effective. It looks nice and it's so easy and it can be shared so quickly that that's a, a good way to do it. And we talked in the last show about how blogs uh, are more effective than press releases. I think this is along those same lines, such a good example. So, so that quote uh, was sent on social and here's what the quote was. Quote, all of us who love baseball have long known that the Negro Leagues produced many of our game's finest players innovations and triumphs against the backdrop of injustice. We are now grateful to count the players of the Negro Leagues where they belong as major leaguers within the official historical record. Period. Very simple. Two sentences. And it went on on Twitter and it got, it basically exploded. Uh, You know, it was shared everywhere. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, again, nice and nice and pithy. Like you, you talked about last week, Cam, the ability to sort of circulate that and disseminate that message is obviously going to be infinitely easier with such a short, manageable, digestible piece than some long form press release. Right. Yes, it's very concise. And they were trying to head off some conflict here. And it's in that first sentence where he says, all of us who love baseball have long known that the Negro Leagues produced many of our game's greatest players. So it's trying to head off some opposition right in that first line. Whereas if you dispute this or if you have a problem with this, then you, you're not one who loves baseball or who knows baseball. Very, very, very subtle messaging. But I thought it was quite, quite smart that that, that went in there as well. So the second one, the timing. So I I talked about this uh, a little bit. The the Negro Leagues began in 1920. Well, it's 2020. So that obviously makes sense. I mean, it's it's 100 years uh, since the start. But also because I mentioned, you know, the racial unrest this year. So it's topical in a positive way. But also, there's no baseball playing right now. In fact, there's no NBA. There's no NHL. There's no MLS. (laughs) Everything is shut down. uh, And the NFL doesn't play midweek traditionally. And this came out on a Wednesday. So baseball was able to keep all of the attention to itself. So the timing 
was quite smart uh, on that perspective as well. And then, you know, lastly, Ewan, they did do a press release. And it's, I mean, this, this plays into exactly what I said last week. I mean, it's not cited anywhere, really, but it is on their website. It is lengthy. So they were, they were prepared. And then uh, there's a video section of the Major League Baseball website where they had material ready to go. So including um, an interview with Sean Gibson, who's the great grandson of Hall of Famer Josh Gibson. So they had clearly gone out, done these interviews, you know, prepared the material and then rolled it out in a coordinated way. And, and that's really effective. And, you know, I, I've worked in teams where, where we've done something similar. And, you know, sometimes you can, you can plan a coordination rollout over many days, you know, which, which we also do. And that's also what sort of the, the Major League Baseball uh, Association has done uh, as well. So there's actually four videos there, you know, talking about the significance of this. Um, and I, I thought overall, you know, it's, it's an important issue, obviously, that we've dealt with in 2020. And it was just really a well-planned campaign and it was a well-executed rollout. Cam, I want to I want to ask you because yeah, you talk about that coordinated rollout, right? You start with a simple tweet and then it kind of it kind of rolls from there. How do you, you know, when you're sort of advising business, how do you I mean, how do you how do you determine how best to sort of coordinate that rollout from from the business's perspective and the best way to go about doing it? Okay, so the first question is who 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 are you talking to? That's always the, the first question. Like, are you a, are you a B2B company? Um, you know, are, are you a, a fintech? Do you, do you target, you know, teenagers or retirees? You know, which countries? All of this sort of stuff plays into it because you want to go where your primary audience is. And Twitter is really popular for sports fans. Actually, it's great for, for sports. Um, so that, that made a lot of sense um, for Major League Baseball. But, you know, if it's a different company, there might be a different different kind of, of, of rollout for this. But I do think in general, the quote, we call them quote cards. They're really effective. And we use them a lot at the stock exchange. We've used them a little bit, you know, in my current role. And I think they're so easy to do. I mean, uh, well, here, here's a, here's a tip. If you go to uh, canva.com, C-A-N-V-A.com, I'm sure some of our comms listeners will, will already be familiar with it, but it's basically a website that will give you hundreds of thousands of templates for these kinds of quotes or messages. You just drop your own brand colors in there and retype the text and you're done and it's ready to go. So this stuff is really easy to do, but you know, if baseball hadn't done that, what would it have been like a link to a press release? Very unlikely people are going to click a link and read through a long formally scripted press release. So like, I actually don't think this is like a, a nice to have or a cool new thing. It was the basis of the entire campaign. I mean, it was built around that, the quote card that was shared on social. So, so it is that important. And I think it makes that big of a difference. Right. And I guess that's probably one of the easiest ways to control the narrative as well, right? You keep the message really, really short and pithy. It makes it very, very difficult for, you know, any sort of contrarian perspectives to, to manipulate the message, right? Yeah. And it also makes it easy for reporters to cite. Now, like reporters would look at news releases. I mean, they, they're obviously going to do that because they're, 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 they need that information. But having the quote so succinct like that um, and separate, it does make it just that much easier for people to, to mention or write about or reshare or to put into a story. Um, you know, oftentimes now journalists, I'm sure you've seen this, They'll embed a tweet inside of their story so you can actually see it um, there. And again, that's just another that's positive for Major League Baseball, you know, when, when, when uh, news organizations do that. So, um, 
you know, and I, I doubt this cost very much money. Um, there are the videos, uh, so they would have had to, you know, have, have a film crew, which I'm sure they, they have in-house, uh, to do some of that. But but by and large, I mean, doing the press release, doing the quote card, doing the social media, this stuff is all very low to no cost uh, to do. So um, it is something that people should think about when they're putting these campaigns together. Yeah. And I think that's a really good takeaway as well. Right. I mean, I know from, from our, our firm's perspective and certainly from businesses that I've spoken with, um, often it's that idea, right. That getting the message right from a marketing or PR perspective is really costly that you have to bring in professionals who can, can sort of help you craft that message and then figure out how to roll it out. And to your point, sometimes, in fact, more often than not, less is more. And that a very, very simple, succinct, message can get you and gain a lot more traction than something that might be a little more involved and complicated. Yes. And, and I'm, I'm going to pull back the curtain a little bit, but I mean, you know, when we publish articles or, or blog posts to the website, our, our baseline is three days worth of multimedia content to support that piece of content. So, I mean, if an article goes up or a blog post, that takes a lot of time. Obviously, you've got your executives involved. You know, you want to make sure your messaging is correct and it's written well. So you don't just want to post it on the website and then it it just doesn't, no one goes to see it. And so, you know, we, we set up from the beginning to create different kinds of content. Maybe it's a short video, which you can also do uh, online. I'll put a link to the service that makes it dead simple. You can upload three or four photos. It'll add music. You can write on the screen and it's output, it's exported and ready to go, you know, in 10, 15 minutes. So you can do a video there. You can do a quote card. Maybe you do a second quote card on another different quote. You know, maybe you put this stuff together and then you put it on Twitter, time it to hit different time zones, you know, to make sure you get that, make sure it's on Facebook, make sure it's on LinkedIn, you know, make sure it's on Instagram, depending on what it is, uh, or, or Snapchat. And that's how you can sort of build a bit of an echo chamber around a, a piece of content. And each of those channels is reaching different kinds of people. So you may not need to use them all. For instance, if you're dropping a new album, you'd for sure want to be figuring out, you know, what to do with TikTok on something like that. So, I mean, these are, these are the considerations that would go into it. Got it. Okay. Very cool. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Check this out. Whoa, hey, check this out. No, no, wait, wait. Oh, check it out, check it out. I want you to check this out. On the PR and Law Podcast. All right, Ewan. This is our last check this out until next year. So let's make it count. <laughs> what have you got? Oh, well, I, that's a lot of pressure now, Cam. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't... It, this isn't anything... Pretty crazy off the charts for an end of the year, but it was uh, something that I, I I thought of you when I saw this too, Cam. And um, you know, I've talked about this uh, I think twice before over the course of the year. It's the uh, the Pitchfork Sunday reviews, mm-hmm. Cam, where they take a they take a record that has not been reviewed by Pitchfork. That's the criteria. As long as it hasn't been reviewed, they can. It's fair game, no matter how far back they have to go. <laughs> and uh, today's record. They went back to 1993, wow. looking at U2's Zuropa. Really? Wow. Yes. What do yes. they have to say? 
Well, it, it's a really, really it, much of it focuses on the sort of political and social context that was going on at the time and the their massive, massive zoo TV tour that you might recall, Cam, mm-hmm. which included things like, you know, satellite calls with random citizens in, in war torn Sarajevo and um, other other locations across across Europe predominantly. And to think that, you know, this was in an age pre Zoom, pre high speed Internet. It really was sort of novel and kind of state of the art mm-hmm. for the time. Right. Yeah. Um, but what I what I what I love and the reason this really sort of um, caught caught my eye is because I've never been, you know, a huge U2 fan. I like U2. You know, I I, I understand um, their significance in, in kind of pop culture and pop and rock and um, and what mm-hmm. have you. But for whatever reason, Zuropa has always resonated with me. It's like this outlier in its, its catalog that just sort of, it's so weird and so different from everything else that they did. And uh, just, in my opinion, just the best kind of way. And the fact that it was just supposed to be like a stopgap EP after the release of Octung Baby to sort of stretch out that Z- Zoo TV tour, which mm-hmm. was just going on and on and on. And they wanted to have some new music to circulate. And the EP, the recording process was kind of going so well that they just decided, ah, heck it, you know, let's just drop a full, a full LP. Um, but, you know, as you know, I know, you know, this record cam, it is, it's just so odd yeah. and removed. You know, you've got tracks like numb where you sort of have the edge doing lead vocal for what I think is probably the only time in the, in the history of their catalog where he effectively just speaks Yes. A number of phrases. And he's got someone's um, feet on his face during the music video. <laughs> I will right, always yeah. remember that. Then you've got tracks like Lemon and Daddy's Gonna Pay for Your Crash Car, which sort of sound like electro pop meets what was, kraut rock. What was the first single off there? I remember it shocked people because it was very sort of dancey, kind of almost like EDM kind of thing. Do you remember? I think it was, yeah, I think it was Lemon, which had this sort of very weird. It wasn't Lemon. I'm going to find you don't think so. I know. Okay. Okay. Uh, Because then they had staring at the sun, which was a single. I know that. No, no, that's from pop. That was the next record. Oh, maybe I'm thinking about the 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 wrong record. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, and then I think you've got, you've, you've got a track like stay far away. So close, which I think is really one of the best mm-hmm. ballads that Bono ever wrote. Um, and then you've got, of course, you know, the piece de la resistance Cameron at the very end of the record, which is the wanderer, which is, uh, a duet. Excellent. Well, actually we can't even say it's a duet cause it's not because Bono basically steps aside and he lets mm-hmm. Johnny cash take lead vocal. Um, in a totally crazy otherworldly kind of track. And all of this is all mixed up with Brian Eno's really incredible production. Um, anyway, just a really cool, cool record and a review in pitchfork. That's really interesting to sort of put in the political, social, historical context of 1993. Mm -hmm. Um, and just how far ahead of their time, the band was in terms mm-hmm. of global communications and satellite and um yeah cool cool stuff so the singles numb was the first one lemon second and then stay was the third mm-hmm. and none of them uh well, i can't find the right information here but anyway i doubt any of them charted I, yeah i don't think any <laughs> of them charted is the point i was i was trying to make 
No, that sounds that sounds cool, Ewan. Yeah, that is a that is an interesting album. I, I remember when it was released. I listened to it a lot. I occasionally throw it on still, but um, I'm glad you reminded me. I'm probably going to give it a spin this week. Anyway, a, a couple of things that I wanted to mention, just because it's the end of the year, so I had three items here that you might want to want to take a look at. You know, over the over the holidays, um, the first is an article. It actually appeared in 2018, so it is a couple of years old, but it's it's as relevant now as it as it ever has been. And it's uh, the article is called "How the Enlightenment Ends," and it's written by Henry Kissinger, interestingly enough, in the Atlantic uh, in 2018, and it's about AI, artificial intelligence. And it really breaks down in a clear way sort of how artificial intelligence works and what might be the consequences of the fallout uh, or the challenges or the benefits from that. And, you know, I think for a lot of people, AI is something a little bit esoteric, a little bit sort of outside of their realm. Um, and it sounds confusing, but it it's going to be a, a, a really big it's, it's going to have a very big impact on, on people's lives uh, in the years ahead. So so that's one for sure. The second one is uh, about Britney Spears, and I. So anyway, we're going from transitioning. So let's put this in context. We went you two, Henry Kissinger, Britney Spears. We're really running the gamut here. This is, this yeah. is good. And my last one's going to be even more uh, off the mark. But anyway, this interested me because uh, it's about conspiracy theories, and I don't know what it is about America these days and their conspiracy theories. But anyway. It's an article that was just published in Vanity Fair, and it's called The Oracle of Brit. And basically, in 2008, if you recall, you and you big Britney Spears fan, you, uh, she was she had a bit of a, a meltdown and she shaved her head and there was all this sort of stuff that happened. And I do kind of remember all of that taking place in the background. But anyway, at that time, uh, her father was uh, or she entered into a conservatorship and her father uh, basically was was in charge of her her finances and, and all sorts of, of other things. And he's still in charge. And she's obviously now, you know, in her late thirties, but there's been, I guess, among her fandom, the, a feeling that she is trapped. They're looking at her Instagram photos and they're, you know, deciphering messages that she's seeking help and want someone to help her. And they've put together, you know, a number of little bits of uh, information to sort of confirm this conspiracy theory in their heads. I, I think it's interesting because it reminds me so much of the QAnon conspiracy. That's exactly what I was going and, to say. This sounds like an extension of QAnon. Yeah. And at the same time, you know, when you look through it, there are probably legitimate issues here. It's just the, uh, you have to take quite a big logical leap to, to make the same conclusion, but you know, articles in Vanity Fair are always, always well done. And so this is, this is, this is an interesting one. If you want to sit down and sort of get immersed in something bizarre. And then the last one, Ewan, I finally, or I, I, I watched the movie Hillbilly Elegy. And I don't know if you read the book. I did read the book a couple of years ago. And it's one of the books that I think about fairly often, actually. It had quite, a, quite an impact on me. Are you familiar with the story? I'm not. I'm, uh, and I, I guess I don't want to. I don't want to jump ahead and steal your thunder here. Uh, but I mean, I, I have read some some pretty scathing reviews about about the film, about how it's it's sort of, you know, like white progressive liberals trying to depict um, sort of the conservative deep south in a somewhat sanctimonious way. Or at least one review was that I read was incredibly scathing along those lines. Uh, I, I don't. I don't well, know if that's where you're going. Um, 
I think that's fair. But I also think, as is usually the case, the book is much better than, than the movie. Um, I, I think the movie's okay. Yeah, if you're looking for that sort of political angle, you, you may find that. In fact, I think you will find that. But by and large, uh, despite its faults, there's still a message in there. And I think, you know, when we talk about class divisions, it sounds, you know, like we, we sort of um, generalize it into, into classes or, or income brackets, but there's the huge social component. And I mean, in the book, he talks about some of the experiences of his childhood and how he was not prepared at all for going to Yale. Uh, and, and I mean, there's one sort of anecdote from, from the book where, you know, he had to go to, cause he's a lawyer, you and so he had to go to one of those sort of large dinners with, you know, a lot of partners of firms cause they want to get articling, they want to get in there. And, um, you know, he was asked, do you want still or sparkling? And he sort of made a joke and said, what is sparkling? Is this just like a fancy way for, for, you know, term for wine or something? <laughs> Cause he'd never, he'd never been offered it before. And so this sort of tells you his background and sort of the things he's had to overcome. And it's, it's, I, I definitely would get the book, but if, if someone doesn't read or they don't want to go through the trouble, uh, I still recommend uh, watching the movie. Okay. All right. Well, um, perhaps I will, I'll probably just go to the book too, actually. Yeah, go to the book. <laughs> probably. To the book. And yeah. you know, <laughs> it, it is much better. And I, I will say, uh, all of the things that you and I have talked about today, uh, as always will be in the show notes. So click through, um, if you want to link to any of these things and, and, and we can share it with you. Uh, you and any thoughts as we wrap up year one? It's hey, you know this has been a lot of fun. We as we've we've talked about before, we sort of threw the show together in April. We didn't really know what it was going to look like or where it was going to go. And I think anybody who's followed us from week one till now would probably uh, um, could could probably say the same. But this has just been a blast. I'm really looking forward to uh, where we can take the show in the new year. And I just want to wish everybody a very, very happy and safe holiday, a very, very happy new year and really looking forward to, to chatting with you in the new year, Cam. Yeah. And you know, you and mentioned on this episode uh, about how Christmas this year is going to be mostly just immediate family. Um, and so that means that you and I will have some time to talk about the future of this podcast, um, which I'm, I'm looking forward to do. And I think, um, you know, we've already shared some, some interesting ideas internally. We're definitely very committed to continuing this in 2021. And, um, you know, we want to make it a lot better. And so if you have ideas or if you want to take part or uh, suggestions or complaints or whatever it might be, please reach out to us because, you know, we're, we're really open to, to those ideas and, and, and that feedback as we prepare for next year. So, amen. Yes, Ewan. Uh, very Merry Christmas to you and your family and uh, Happy New Year and all of that sort of uh, good stuff. And also for our audience, thank you so much for sticking with us this year. It really was uh, a blast. You know, we're having a lot of fun doing this. And yeah, we do want to make it um, even better for you next year. All right. That wraps up episode number 37 uh, and the final of uh, twenty. 20. Thank you so much for joining us, not just today, but uh, all year. And don't miss a show next year. You can subscribe in your podcast app of choice, or you can subscribe to our YouTube or SoundCloud channels. And you can also follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn, and the newsletter at prlawpodcast.club. 
So for you and Christy, this is Cam McMurchie. Happy holidays and light it up. This has been the PR and Law Podcast with Cam McMurchie and you and Christy. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend or leave a review. You can also join us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by following our account at PR Law Podcast. That's all one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Thanks for your support.